0: those of us who peaked in the 70s would perhaps propose that the 70s put out some good classic rock. Now, I need to qualify that. I am not proposing here that all oh, rock and roll is, is, is good and it's helpful and it's godly. In fact, much of it is ungodly. But at the same time, as you think about different songs, they often teach you kind of what, what's at the heart of what people are thinking, what they're struggling with. Culture is sort of reflected in music. And I remember a song that was, it actually, I think might have been in the late 60s, but it was by a band named War, and it was called Why Can't We Be Friends? Some of you remember that word, why can't we be friends? I mean, in essence, that's a great question. Why can't we be friends? Why can't we all join hands, get a Coca-Cola, and the world just unites together, right? But we know historically... That's not going to happen, and we know theologically why that's not going to happen. It's because of human sin. It's because of the corruption and fallenness of of each one of us on planet Earth. Now, many of you remember uh, there was a time when our country almost divided, when the South wanted to secede from the Union, and Abraham Lincoln gave such a profound phrase. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And we're all like, whoa. Well, we didn't say it then because we weren't alive. (laughs) But I think we all know this, that he didn't make that phrase up. Jesus did. Jesus said that in the Gospel of Mark. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And, and, And it was just sort of like exposing the absurdity of what the religious leaders were accusing him of. He's casting out demons, Satan's helpers, and they're going, Satan's helping you to cast out his helpers. And Jesus goes, that doesn't even make sense. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Well, I think that that particular truth is profoundly important for families, businesses, countries, but perhaps most importantly, the church the body of Christ. Some of you remember a cartoon that the children used to watch, maybe you used to watch, it was called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But one of their nemesis, one of the enemies, was Master Shredder. Master Shredder. And the Bible has a lot of names for Satan. He's a liar, the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air. But I'm wondering if that wouldn't be a good way to explain part of the work of Satan. He's a master shredder. He divides families, and he loves to divide churches. And this morning, as we look at uh, this passage, we're beginning to look at 1 Corinthians, and we called this series Rebuilding. Not building, but rebuilding a healthy church, because Paul had begun to build a healthy church, but now it needed some renovations, deep spirit-led renovations. And so, we suggested last week that the first area that they were going to focus on in this remodeling was division. There was division in the church. So, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 where we're just going to introduce this idea. Now, the first four chapters of this book are about division in the church. Then we're going to get to some difficulties, remember, in the middle of the book where we'll look at incest and indictments and immorality. And then the rest of the book is dealing with things on their mind. It's, it's the difficulties that they raise, like marriage and tongues and meat to idols and so forth. But this whole idea of division at the outset of this letter, apparently there were some really difficult quarrels and conflicts within this church. And I've often wondered when you drive past a A church that's called Second Baptist, Third Presbyterian. I always wonder about that, like, hmm, you know, did they just get too many people and just say, well, let's build one next door, Well, it's called Second and Third. But we all know that Christianity has um, unfortunately been known for being very divisive. So what we're going to find here is that the things that they were divided over are not the things that we're divided over. But what we're going to find is it's just as relevant back then to see that Christians get divided. That's the problem. And then what does the Bible say for the solution? So let's pray and then we'll look at this. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and help us to apply this passage to our church, to our families, to our relationships with others. Thank you that the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, and it's true. And we pray, Father, that we will not deflect or think that this passage is not speaking to all of us. May Jesus be present in our midst as He calls His elect to Himself and as He builds the church for His glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's read verses 10 through 17 where Paul begins to address this issue of division. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by close people, that there are quarrels among you. So the first thing I want you to note in verses 10 and 11 is he uses two words, divisions and quarrels. The first word is actually translated divisions is the Greek word schisma. We all know what a schism is, right? But this word itself, literally, it means a split or a tear. So it was used in the Gospels when Jesus talked about tearing of the wineskins. But in this case, it's a condition of being divided because of conflict of aims or beliefs or objectives. So it's used frequently in the Gospel of John. It'll just say, when Jesus preached, there arose a schism among them. Some believed him, some didn't. So Paul uses this word. He goes, I hear that there are these these tears among you, these these rips, these, these gaps. Well, what's causing them? Well, then he uses the second word. He goes, quarrels. Now, this word, means strife and discord and contention. So it's kind of like which comes first, the quarrel or the division? And I think they're overlapping. One of the things that struck me is that most frequently Paul uses this word translated trials with the word envy or jealousy. Almost every time when he lists this sin He'll put jealousy and strife, envy and strife, jealousy and strife. He has a number of vice lists where he goes, those two go very close together. So the question we want to ask here is, over what were they divided? What were they having these strife and tears and quarrels about? And then interestingly, later in this section, he's going to keep using the word, you're boasting, you're puffed up. So there's a sense in which whatever's causing it somewhere behind the scenes there's some pride going on and oftentimes we can sort of see that in any conflict right two people are are coming as a pastor as I'm interacting with with couples for example and I'm sure this is true of all of us me and my wife as well we've been for counseling most people sort of have an unwritten sign on their forehead um I'm not here because I'm wrong I'm here because they're wrong so please you know they told me we need to go to counseling so please Do your best to get done with them. And then the other person's going, I want to agree with him, but then we would both be wrong. And so you're like, okay. (laughs) So here we have these quarrels and conflicts in the church. And next week, Pastor John's going to share. We're going to see in more detail what what was the root of it. But nevertheless, we identify, all right, this is a painful reality. Now, he says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever Paul does that, that's kind of like a subtle but still very strong command. He could just as easily have said to you, I command you as an apostle. But frequently he'll use this phrase, I exhort you, I I encourage you, I urge you to do this. But then he adds the authority, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you'll note when you're reading Paul's letters, he'll frequently say that. He's not going, here's a suggestion, it's kind of a subtle, but, but it, it, it's interesting when you're trying to encourage someone to change their behavior, you can just get in their face, even with your kids, and go, stop it. Or you can urge them with a sense of weight behind it. And so he says, I urge you that you all agree. Now, did he just say that? In fact, literally in Greek, it says that you all say the same thing. So he's going to use this word same. He goes, I want you to say the same thing. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to be of the same judgment. And you're going, how on earth is that ever going to happen? That we all say the same thing. That we all literally come out with the same perspective on everything. And the reality is that's not what he means here. He's not saying that we all have to agree on everything. But what he is saying is there are some things that we have to agree on or you're not a Christian. In fact, it's very interesting. We're going to look at this at the end. At the end of the book, he actually says, I hear that some schisms are among you and they're necessary. And you go, Paul, why would a schism be necessary? He goes, so that those who are in the right will stand out. So there are times that churches do need to split. If half the church has gone we don't believe the Bible anymore. We just think you can do whatever you want. That type of schism is necessary that those who are true to the scriptures can stand with the scriptures. But when he says here that I want you to all agree, we're gonna talk about the difference between in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, there is an absolute demand for unity. But in the non-essentials, we have to learn to allow for diversity. People are allowed to have their own opinions. We're not a whole bunch of robots that dress the same way, say the same thing, like the same football team, you know, have the same politics, have the same view of science. So he says, look, I want you to, in these essentials, say the same thing. Now, obviously, what they were doing is they were elevating the non-essentials and going, nope, if you don't agree with me here, you're off the team. So how does he handle this? He says, well, number one, I want you to be made complete. That's a really interesting word in verse 10, because that word literally means to be knit together. So he's almost saying, I see a tear in your church. Now, for Jesus' sake, will you let the Lord knit you back together again? Will you let him humpty-dumpty you so that all of the king's men don't mock us because we can't even get along? That was a big concern of Paul's. In chapter 6 when he says, you guys are suing one another, and that before unbelievers. If there's one thing the world is looking for, it's sincerity among Christians. Can we get along? If we can't, what in the world do we have to offer? Can we forgive? Can we love? Can we be patient? Can we work through issues? If we can't, then what are we selling? Snake oil? So he's going to encourage them, you guys have to deal with this. And by the way, I can imagine the Corinthians going, how do you know, Paul? We didn't say anything about that in our letter because we learn at the end of the book that some of the leaders of the church brought him a letter. He says, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I know. For I have been informed, verse 11, concerning you, my brethren, by close, now just literally, it's just by of close, close people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, this is kind of interesting. Commentaries differ on this. or are like Did Chloe actually have a house, or Chloe, however you want to pronounce it, please don't send me a letter about your granddaughter, it's Chloe, probably, however you pronounce it, Um, but remember, they didn't have one big church, they had house churches, so was Chloe a house church leader from Corinth? I mean, that would be kind of interesting, right? Because everybody would be like, you rat, she dropped a dime on us, right, when in fact, even if she did, I think it was the right thing to do. Matthew 18, she obviously couldn't resolve it, so she went to an apostle. But, but others have suggested that she wasn't actually from the church. When Paul wrote this, he was in Ephesus. So, it's quite possible that she was from Ephesus, but she went to Corinth, and she fellowshiped, and she talked, and when she came back, she gave Paul an earful. Like, Paul, you're not going to believe what's going on. So... Sometimes Christians feel that to bring something out into the light is bad. We're rats, right? Uh Uh-uh. Matthew 18 says if someone is in sin, we go to them in private. And I know what we say. We go, I know how that's going to end. They're going to get mad. Of course they're going to get mad. Nobody wants people to come and correct them. But then it says you bring someone with you. So there are times where we have to bring others into an issue to try to resolve this. So Paul goes on, he goes, now, now let me explain what I mean in verse 12, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And you go, what in the world does he, does he mean by this? Well, first of all, one of the things we're gonna learn is they were really enamored with your ability to, to, to preach in a very captivating way. So the Bible says that Apollos was an eloquent speaker. Like he was just easy to listen to. It's kind of like listening to um, someone with a Scottish accent. They could be talking about the weather and you're like, wow, that was profound. Someone with a Southern accent, nothing personal, but sometimes somebody say the exact same words would be like, well, that wasn't much. So they were captured. I'm, I'm not insulting Southerners, please. Um, but they were enamored with your ability to speak. That was a big deal back then. And so, Apollos, in that respect, was far more gifted than Paul. In fact, Paul's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians, my speech is unimpressive. I'm not, I'm not one of them fellas that really entertained you, right? You know, we, we already know that Eutychus fell asleep during his sermon. Somebody was telling me the other day, they said, Pastor, if I fall asleep this Sunday... Um, I just want you to know here's why. And I'm like, don't worry, I wouldn't notice. There's a bunch of people there asleep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so so Paul actually comes out and says, I'm not that gifted speaker. Apollos was. And so apparently there was this sense of which, you know, I tuned my radio to Apollos. Now there's even some debate here. I personally don't even think the issue was over Paul and Apollos, because in chapter four, he's gonna say, I've applied Apollos and, and, and myself figuratively. So, the reality is, he's probably talking about other leaders in the church. Paul's gone now. There's, you know, how many? 10 house churches. And among these house churches, they're arguing about who's smarter and who's a better speaker. So, Paul says, and, and he begins to reason with him. He goes, This is ridiculous. He goes, Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now that's, that's an interesting, interesting word, word or phrase. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because it gives us a little sense of what baptism is. When you're baptized into someone's name, what you're doing is you're, you're pledging your loyalty to them. Right? So when we baptize, Jesus didn't just say, go and baptize people. He said, baptize them in the name of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think it gives a little more significance to what am I doing when I get up here? Um, Pastor Tom, uh, can, I, can I get my baby baptized? And personally, I'm not saying it's wrong, but personally, I don't think that's strongly taught in the Bible, but I wouldn't divide over that. I like Dunkin' Coffee, but I don't like Dunkin' Munchkins. <laughs> but not because I think it's sinful if it's done the way that some people do it. Now, there are people who baptize infants thinking that that gets them to heaven. I totally disagree with that. I think that's false theology. But I think the idea of baptizing a child the way some do, to bring them under the covenant, you know, to, in hopes of their salvation, that's not right or wrong. But, but think about this. When you're baptized into the name of someone, you're, you're pledging your loyalty to that person, right? And, and where else would we pledge allegiance? Oh, yeah, to the flag. Now, obviously, the Pledge of Allegiance is so far distant from what I mean by this, but it's an illustration. When it was first written, the idea is I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. We're not even going to go there politically, but the point is when you get into the water, you're saying, I have been washed in the blood of Jesus, I've been bought by Jesus. I have died to my old self, so the rest of my life I am pledging my allegiance to my wonderful Savior. I'm going to write him a long thank you note called my life, right? And, and, and I want us to loop around and think about how do we view baptism? Some churches overemphasize it. Like I've often wondered, why do we have Baptist churches, right? I've never heard of a communion church or a prayer church. And this isn't to insult or, or or to diminish Baptist churches, but and I understand the history of why because that was what made them significant. But what happens is in some circles that becomes everything. We we trace that trail all the way back to John the Baptist. And it's like, okay, let's keep baptism in its perspective. But on the other hand, there are many churches that diminish baptism. It's like it's not what gets you to heaven, so whatever it's like, well, wait a minute. When I'm reading the book of Acts, there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. You don't go, oh, yeah, I got saved, you know, 20 years ago. Maybe someday I'll get baptized. But I prefer to be in the Riviera. Or I'm going to wait till I go in the Jordan. I'm like, wait, what? So let's see what Paul says about baptism and their divisions. And then we'll see how we can apply it. So he says, I'm glad, verse 14, that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius is interesting. Crispus is mentioned in Acts 18. He was one of the synagogue leaders. But Gaius, this guy I want to say a couple of things about. Paul mentions him in the book of Romans. And he says the whole church, the whole church was meeting in his house at one point. So Gaius was a, a very, very wealthy man. He had a big home. So big that there was a lot of Christians that would come into his home. And Paul remembers baptizing him. Now, he's, he's got Sosthenes with him. Later on, he's going to mention some other brothers were, were, that are with him. So he goes, I didn't baptize any except those two guys. Now, this is really cool because, remember, the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God. And he goes, these are the only two I baptized." And I don't know who, but one of them raised her hand and said, that's not true, Paul. They're not the only two you baptize. And he's like, what? You, what, what? He goes, uh, you forgot about Stephanus." Paul's like... Oh, yeah, right? So look at the next verse. Well, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, now just to clarify and not be extreme, because I don't know, I don't know if I baptized any other. Maybe I got myself in a corner by saying, I didn't baptize anybody. Now, you know what I, I like about that? The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. Every word of God is inspired. But, but I find it fascinating that in a miraculous way, God allowed each of these individuals to use their personality. God wasn't just telling Paul, okay, now, ready, begin. And Paul's going, don't talk so fast, God. That using Paul's personality, the Holy Spirit recorded exactly what he said. So Paul says, I, uh, that's right, I did baptize Stephanus." Now we're going to come back to that because that guy's going to be important. But in verse 17, he says this, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And then he's going to explain, now the way I preach the gospel is not in clever speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. So let's start with this. Christ didn't send me to baptize. Wait, what? I thought the great commission was go and preach the gospel. I thought Jesus said go and make disciples and baptize them. Did he say that? Yes. Yes. So why would Paul say here, Christ did not send me to baptize? This does not mean that Paul had a low view of baptism, nor that he was disinterested in whether or not you were baptized. It's simply Paul saying here that I don't want to prioritize baptism above the gospel. Now, I, I do need to say this. Be careful. There are churches that Teach that you have to be baptized or you're not saved, okay? Uh, and, I, and I don't mind naming the denomination. The first denomination is the Church of Christ. There's one right down on Levittown Parkway. I've been in the church. I pulled a track out of their thing just to make sure, and sure enough, here's how you get saved. Admit your sinner, believe that Christ died and rose again, repent, believe the gospel, and get baptized, Okay? Where do they get that from? Two verses. In Mark 16:16, 16, 16, Jesus said, "Go and preach the gospel. Those who believe and are baptized will be saved." Wait, did we get it wrong? 1 Peter 3:16. Peter's comparing baptism to Noah and the ark and he says, "Corresponding to Noah, baptism now saves you." Right? So what I want you to be aware of is that false teaching is often often used by twisting scripture. 2nd Peter chapter 3 says this, in the last days false teachers will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. To add baptism as a prerequisite of salvation is to bring the judgment of God, that is to bring the anathema of God. Paul said if anyone preaches a gospel other than what I preach It's a false gospel. In his time, they were adding circumcision. Yeah, of course you need to repent and believe, but you have to be circumcised. But I would say that's the exact same parallel. If you say you're not saved until you get baptized, then of course you're going, well, what about the thief on the cross? And their answer is, well, he couldn't, but you can. Please do not let anyone persuade you that baptism is part of what saves you. And sometimes we can root that out because when a person says, I want to get baptized, and you say, why? They go, because I want to go to heaven. It's like, well, that doesn't save you, okay? So, let me make that clear. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, by God's grace, we are saved through faith. It's it's the cross alone. It's faith alone. It's the grace of God alone. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Could I have amen. Like, that's what we believe here. Not because we're smart, not because we're better, not because we're brighter than the average bearers, because that's the heart of the gospel. And so, what the phrase that Paul used is, he says, listen, the way you preach and the values of what you put on what you need to do to be saved either magnifies the cross or eliminates the cross. You might as well put a big X to it and say, get it out of here, because he says, if your focus is on clever speech, the cross is made empty. The cross is not a Christmas tree upon which we should all add one more ornament. Don't add anything to the cross. It's happening tremendously today. Many, many churches, they, they, they give acknowledgement, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, of course, but then you have to do this and you have to do this. And, and, and after that, you have to go to purgatory. Or, and this isn't, this isn't Protestant churches, you know, Roman Catholic churches. It's just a common thing to add stuff to the gospel. That is no small thing. And that's what we have to agree on. That's the difference between heaven and hell. If a person is relying on anything but the finished work of Christ to get them to heaven, then that's a false gospel. And we don't have to go, oh, you're a heretic. You You plead with them. You talk to them. You say, listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus paid it all, not Jesus paid part of it. So, Paul introduces this idea. And he says, all right, we've got some problems here. We've got some some quarreling and some strife. And so, I, I just hope that you're clear on that. Baptism does not affect your salvation, okay? Baptism does not get you into heaven. So, where do we go from here? Well, Gordon Fee, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, it's really a well-written commentary. Um, for those of you that want to go deeper, um, he said this, and I've been through most of it already, but it's just been really helpful. He said this, at the end of this passage, and now think about this, he wrote this years ago. He had no clue what was coming in America when it comes to politics science, quote, your view of science versus someone else's view. He had no clue what was coming when it comes to vaccines and all of the issues that churches are struggling with. But he said this, back then, he would have put it in giant print if he was writing today. It's easy to see the urgency of a paragraph like this for the contemporary church, which often experiences quarrels at the local level, but is often deeply fragmented at every other level like, what is he, a prophet? How did he know that? He says, we have churches, we have denominations, we have renewal movements. And he said, too often they broke off and become their own church of Christ. That's how you have to do it. And he said, there's every imaginable individualistic movement and sect. And one of the things that I said today is all of you who, who think that it's okay to be a Christian and not go to church, You're wrong. That's just wrong. There's no such thing as individual Christianity. It's always corporate, local church, and it doesn't have to be this church. But we're always called to be in a community, not just Burger king it our way. So, he says, even in a day where churches are trying to have more ecumenism, the likelihood of total visible unity in a church is more remote than ever. But then he, then he goes, all right, now, you know what? He says, listen, this fragmentation is a shame on our house and a cause of deep repentance. Do you agree with that? To be fragmented with quarrels and strifes and disagreements and I don't, I'm not talking, I'm not going. He says, that's a shame on our house and a cause for deep repentance. He said, if there's a way forward, it probably lies less in our structure. In other words, well, how can we solve this? What if we make church like a buffet? Do you like this type of music? That'll be at 8 o'clock. Do you like this kind of music? It's at 9 o'clock. Do you want to dress like this? That'll be at 10 o'clock. Do you want to do this? That'll be 11 o'clock. He says, I don't think that's the issue. He says, perhaps... The focus is to recapture Paul's focus, and that is the preaching of the cross, the gospel. The greater issue is the threat posed to the gospel, and along with that, the nature of the church and its apostolic ministry. So he says, all right, the solution here is to get back to the the single priority of the church, and that is clinging to the gospel. We all agree on that, but that's a little too simplified if we're like, okay, so let's just all go cling to the gospel. You go, but, all right, so what does that look like? So let me make some suggestions. In the gospel, we must be unified, okay? So, for example, I've had two people approach me this week. Hey, um, what's your position on homosexuality? Uh, because my understanding is we, we've misread that. You know, we've learned nowadays that we thought it was wrong, but, but we misread it. And so um, I go to a church where everybody's telling us it's okay. I'm going to tell you unashamedly that that's wrong. There's no room for a twisting of the scripture to allow sexual sin in the church, okay? Imagine if someone tried that with adultery. Because I'm not picking on homosexuality. I'm just simply saying we live in a culture where people do not want to hear the word of God. They want their ears tickled. They do not want to be reproved and rebuked. So, imagine if we said, well, we've misread adultery. Adultery in that culture was like, you know, doing this. But, I mean, it's okay to to have adultery. It's just a different kind. Same thing with immorality. This couple's not married. They're living together. They're fornicating. Well, we've misread fornicating. So, when there are clear moral implications from the Bible that say you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't be immoral, there's no room for diversity on that. If you're looking for a church that has diversity on God's absolutes, you're at the wrong place. Not because we're smarter or better, but because the gospel does have moral ethical implications, right? But in the secondary issues, I think what we need to do is work on allowing people to have diversity, It's okay to have different opinions on secondary issues. I know that's hard for us to grasp. How can someone not see it my way? Don't they watch the same news program I'm watching? Unity does not demand uniformity in every issue. So I think today perhaps we need to think about this, and this came to my mind. We need to be more concerned about following the Savior than our opinion on following the science. Now, that doesn't even mean, to mean we all need to agree on what the science is. What it means to, to, to us is that we need to figure out how we cannot separate over secondary issues. And a lot of it has to do with how we interact with one another. God hates when we sow discord. How ridiculous if anyone lets their loyalty to a political leader supersede their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's absurd and unbiblical. So what do we do about that? Is it possible for somebody to see things differently from me? Sure. So I remember years ago, someone said to me, we went out to dinner with someone and they drank wine, that's wrong. And I go, it could be wrong in certain settings if it's a stumbling block, but you cannot make a case from the Bible that it's wrong, okay? They teach their kids about Santa Claus, that's sin. Don't you know that the same letters of Santa spell Satan? It's wrong, and I go, They don't use the King James Bible, right? Their church wears masks. They're cowards. Their church doesn't wear masks. They're murderers. (laughs) They voted for this person. You can't be a Christian, right? So what do I do about that? I have to learn that, number one, if I hold a different opinion to someone, we need to charitably be able, number, number one, just to listen. The Bible says fools don't delight in understanding, just airing their opinions. Half the time, we're not even listening to what someone's saying. We're just ready to rebuke them as soon as they pause, right? If you come away from every discussion far more impressed with what you said than what you heard, then we weren't listening, and maybe we have pride. So... I, I, I think God's doing a great work in us. He's bringing us together. I, I don't think we have to go, oh, yeah, we, we, have, we have skated through this past year and a half unblemished. But even as elders and pastors, we stood up and said, yeah, we messed up on some things. We're trying to, trying to model that. But as we move forward, I want to remind you of another truth about conflict, and that is where there's conflict... It's often rooted, number one, in selfishness. You're like, well, that's just your opinion. No, that's God's opinion. James chapter 4. So you go, well, me and my spouse aren't getting along. Okay, look around and see if you can spot some selfishness. Is somebody going, I'm sitting next to it. (laughs) James 4 says this. What is the source of your conflicts? Isn't it because you want something and you can't get it and now you're angry, right? They're preventing me from getting what I want. Therefore, it's their fault. So sometimes our conflicts are rooted in selfishness. Often our conflicts are also rooted in pride. I love what one commentary said about this. He goes, why were they boasting about, I am of this guy and I'm of this guy? Were they really trying to exalt Apollos? Or was it subtly a way to exalt themselves? Listen to what he said. I thought this was interesting. He said, Their view of Christian leaders and their wisdom, it really is to exalt themselves. Yeah, they want to boast about that great name, but really they want to boast about themselves. Look, I'm so smart. That's why I associate with them. So as we see conflicts in the church, ask yourself, could this be partly my pride? Could this be partly my selfishness? Could it be possible that even if I was right in what I said, I was wrong in how I said it? Or if someone starts telling me about someone else? Can I say to them, hey, why don't you talk to them about it? Or maybe you should consider that that's, that's not a, 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 a 100% clear doctrinal issue. There's room for diversity on that. Couple last thoughts. How about this? A house divided against itself cannot stand. So let's start, we're going to work our way out in concentric circles. Let's start with your own house. And what I mean by that is your own body. The body says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How could my own body be divided against itself? The Bible calls that a double-minded man, a divided heart. You like to have one foot in Christianity, but you love to have the other foot in the world. And that doesn't work. You're either all in or you're being disobedient. So if your heart is divided personally, and of course, to a certain extent, our hearts are always divided. My flesh is always divided lusting against the Spirit. Somebody used a phrase yesterday in a conversation that I really found profound. I thought this was really helpful. The Bible says we still have the flesh. I don't think it's a different nature, but it's that old sinful disposition that still has been crucified, but it's still there. But the Bible says you are not an, a debtor to obey the flesh. So, this person said, you know what? I was cooperating with my flesh. I like that. When, when you and I are in sin, we're cooperating with the flesh. So, is your house divided? And, and, and of course, we struggle like, yeah, but what are you doing about it? Are you repenting? Are you asking God to change you? Are you asking for prayer? Are you talking to people? Are we trying to grow? Or are you living a, a double life? But then let's go to the next house, and that would be the house in which you live. Now some of you are single, some of you live by yourself. I always found that that's the ideal way to always get along. Living alone, when I'm by myself, we have a great time. <laughs> this is what's so profound to me when couples are fighting and they go, we separated in a pastor You're not going to believe this. We're getting along a lot better. I'm going, you're, what? Yeah, of course, because you're not living together, right? So." When it comes to relationships, is your house divided in your marriage? Now, there are times there's nothing you can do about it. I know we have people here who have an obstinate and unbelieving spouse, and that's really difficult. But some of you are both believers and you're divided and you're not responsible for how they act, but how you've reacted and what you're doing about it. You're like, I don't like this guy. (laughs) I don't like what he's saying. Well, we all have to consider that there are times that it's our own personal sin that's causing conflict in our marriage. Not always, okay? I'm not not throwing you under the bus if you have conflict in your marriage. And by the way, if you have conflict in your marriage, may I remind you, you are not alone. Do not let all these smiling people make you think, as someone said to me once, everyone else in the church has such a good marriage. I'm going, are you talking about our church? they're like yeah and I said why they said because everybody smiles when they come to church well keep doing that don't come and go I hate my spouse you know I'd rather you smile I think that's a better testimony but we struggle and if you're struggling and you're ready to bail or you're having a secret affair in your heart and you're ready to bail God's speaking to you and saying don't give up but then let's move in another concentric circle how about your church how about your church house divided against self cannot stand We got different opinions here, broad spectrum. God doesn't ask us to make everybody our best friend, but he asks us to love one another. He asks us to forgive one another. He asks us to not talk about one another. He asks us not to speak critically about one another. He asks us not to be rude to one another. And so let's pray for greater levels. Again, I think we're, I think we're, we're moving towards healing. I, I, I feel the stitches, don't you, where Jesus is, is, is bringing us together. Could, does anybody agree with that, both of you? Amen? Could you both say amen? The rest of you are like, I don't like them. But some of, some of us are like, yeah, I think God's at work. Praise the Lord. Last thing, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. Final, final thought. Paul mentions this guy, Stephanus, And you're like, how could it be the last thing, Pastor? You have five more minutes. No, I don't we're going we're to pray, but look at verse, chapter 16, Paul mentioned Stephanus. so I'm going to close by saying this, a house divided cannot stand, start with yourself, start with your family, and then think about it, is there anything you need to make right in this church with someone else, or just promoting and praying for unity among the body of Christ? But this one guy, Stephanus, I'm going I'm to say this. There's two things we can learn from him. Number one, we need more people like him. I love this verse. Look at verse 15. He goes, I urge you that you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. They've devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. The Greek word there means they've addicted themselves to ministry. If there was ever addicts that I want in the church, it's that kind. Right? Not substance addicts, but people who are addicts to ministering to people. We have a bunch of them may God raise up a bunch more of them they're addicts to serving and loving other Christians but then Paul says something to the church about them he says so here's what i want you to do be in subjection to such men and so there's a subtle reminder that as leaders we need to we need to stop and say okay we're not lords but the church is not a democracy so we can work together the bible says Submit to your leaders so they can do this with joy because they have to give an account. So we've messed up. We're we're working on that. We're praying, and we love you guys. We pray hard. We're having some great times together as leaders. And, and, And work with us. Amen? Work with us. Finally, if you're not baptized, why not? If you're a believer, why not? Let us know. We'll prepare it. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for this good word from the Lord. A house divided cannot stand and we don't want to be divided and it's true that you cannot stand a house divided because it's your body and because you cannot stand a house divided, please forgive us when we contribute to those divisions. May Satan not be the master shredder but may you be the great one who knits us together in love. Teach us And give us love for one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.